Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Hello, this is episode 52 of the Traveling Image Makers podcast with Hugo Che and Ralph Velasco. Travel photography is not a very well-defined genre, and if meant to encompass every photograph taken while traveling, then millions of travel photos are created every day. How can a serious travel photographer stand out from the crowd and produce work that goes beyond vacation snapshots? What about choice of subject, composition, light and gesture? How can we exploit those factors to create truly compelling photos and not just snapshots? These are some of the questions we asked of our guest for this episode, Brenda Tharp. Brenda is an award-winning photographer and educator. Her photographs have been featured in major magazines. She has written several books and is working on a fourth and still finds time to present frequent lectures on photography and lead international photography tools and workshops. You can find all the links and show notes for this episode at ttim.photo forward slash 52. I hope you will enjoy our conversation with Brenda Tharp. So, very warm welcome uh, to Brenda Tharp, who is uh, joining us from uh, sunny California, that I hear is not very sunny these days. <laughs> is that right, Brenda? <laughs> That's right. We're actually really, really enjoying it. Um, the, the raindrops on the roof of my office are actually very soothing. Um, it's a great way to work, knowing that nature is being nurtured by all this rain, finally. So we're happy that it's not sunny right now. And welcome to my co-host today, Ralph Velasco, who is about to leave for a trip to India. So hello, Ralph. Good morning. How are you? Morning. Good morning. Nice to be here. Nice to be back. Hello, Brenda. Hi, Ralph. Good to good to be with you, virtually. So, so Brenda, <laughs> we we interrupted your uh, work day. You told us you were uh, before we started the recording. You were working on a book. Can you tell us uh, a bit about the book that you're working on? Or? Sure. I'm very excited about it. It's um, called The Expressive Nature Photograph, and it's about landscape and general nature photography, which is also something I do when I'm not traveling around the world. I'm photographing the beauty of nature in the USA and also other countries. So the book is is really a how-to book, but not technical, more on using light and composition and visual depth and things of that nature to make your images stronger. And so I'm very excited about it. It's due out in uh, spring, very early summer, perhaps, of 2017. I'm looking forward to it, maybe to, to complement. So this is on... This is just an audio. People are not watching the video, but I'm holding one of your previous books that I had uh, bought a few years ago called Creative Nature and Outdoor Photography. So I'm looking forward to <laughs> have another one of yours. Well, Which thanks. Great. And um, but this, this is a book about nature photography. We are mostly into travel photography here. So, I mean... You can travel and shoot nature. There's no, <laughs> doesn't mean that travel photography doesn't exclude nature. But can you maybe tell us a bit about your, um, your, your history? How did you become a travel photographer? 
Yeah, um, I was really interested in photography from the time I was about 13 or 14 years old, because my dad was the family photographer, and he recorded the trips that we did, and they were all over the eastern half of the U.S., and so wherever we went, he made pictures, and and first I was just imitating what he was doing, but then when he started handing me his uh, old cameras as he got new equipment, I really got interested in the bug bit, so I I love traveling and that travel bug was in there from my parents and the experiences I had as a kid and that never left me and so the camera became just a natural extension of a way for me to capture the experiences of the places that I visited and to have those memories. So that's initially how I got into doing travel photography. And then full-time, as far as professional photography went, I didn't start that until I left my corporate career that was uh, a longer time ago than I'd like to talk about. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) I was uh, recently watching a video of a presentation you gave at uh, B&H. And that's one uh, one of the reasons I thought of calling you and inviting you to be on the show because it was uh, uh, an hour long presentation I think about uh, how to basically how to go beyond the snapshot. I think the title was exactly beyond the snapshot. And I wanted to to talk with you and I wanted uh, you to explain to our audience to uh, a bit of the the concepts, the the tips, suggestions, and lessons that you. Uh, explained during that lecture because I think that's uh, that, that was very very valuable so we are going to to go over some of the topics but if you would like to to, to add more and suggest the, add even more tips and suggestions that would be that would be great okay okay and uh, sure one of the things you mentioned was uh, capturing the essence of a place can you explain to our listeners uh, what do you mean by that and give some tips about how to do that best? Sure. What I consider the essence of place is is really bringing back through your photographs a feeling of what the place was like, of what you experienced. So rather than just recording and taking a snapshot of something that you see, My idea of capturing the essence of place is to find a way to express through your photographs what it feels like to be there. And that's, it's a little bit difficult to uh, define that completely, but sometimes it's as simple as capturing even just unique signage when you're traveling. For example, once I was in Zurich and it's just a bunch of, you know, buildings and they're old buildings, yes, but when you're downtown and you're walking around, you know, how can you really capture a sense of place there? And I spotted a Swiss clockmaker's Uh, shop and the Swiss are known for clocks and so his sign was really incredible it was a nice wrought iron sign and it had a clock built into it and for me that was one small detail that sort of captured the essence of being in Switzerland Um, but you know and like a it might be a native dress or in the native face you know we if you're in a culture, you're visiting a place where the faces are clearly exotic and unique and identifiable, then even a portrait of someone can capture the essence of place. 
and the clothing, the style of dress, like a Moroccan jalaba and a headscarf, you know, clearly is going to suggest a sense of where we are in the world to the viewer when they're looking at your images. But it does go beyond that in terms of trying to capture the mood of a place. And that often happens when you're working with the light and you're working at capturing some of the daily activities that go on in a place. And so there's, you know, as I said, there's a lot of ways that you can bring home that experience that you've had through your photographs by looking at some of those things. Bit of a tricky questions, if you if you want, but uh, how do you go beyond the, the cliche? I mean, yeah, getting the essence of a place sometimes can be, I mean, I find it personally, it's hard to, to avoid something that is a bit contrived, like, okay, you're in Cuba, there's the lady with the uh, cloth on her head and a cigar in her mouth. So that everybody gets that picture. How do you avoid that kind of uh, situation? Well, the way I avoid it is typically I try, I don't photograph her typically, but I do uh, hopefully find someone who's authentic with a cigar in their mouth. Mm -hmm. And that often happens by walking the back streets, by getting away from the tourist areas. For example, when you go into the old town part of Cuba, yeah, those women are, and men are all over. And sometimes the cigars are 10 times bigger than what they should be, <laughs> you know, and it's all for tourism. And, and to me, that's not as authentic. It is iconic, but it's not authentic. And so, you know, if I'm going to go for a, a Cuban face with a cigar, I will try to find that while I'm walking around on the back streets and away from the tourist centers. And, and then I'll also look at some of the things that, like you said, can be cliche. Um, I try to get authentic pictures of people going about their daily lives and not so much shoot the the pictures that are setups where the you know the, the people know that the tourists are going to want this shot so they come totally prepared now an example um, this guy was there to make some money but he was very unique there was a man walking through one of the squares and he was dressed very dapperly and he had a really handsome outfit on he was handsome and he had red and he had a cane and he just looked totally classy and he was so different from the typical cigar toting Cuban that I thought I've got a photograph this guy. I had never seen him before and I haven't seen him since. But to me, you know, he really, he had this flair and he had this, this sort of attitude and proudness of being Cuban that I felt was not cliche, even though he was trying to work the crowd to make some money. So um, maybe people didn't think he was, you know, cliche enough because I haven't seen him around in a while. <laughs> so I don't know. But, uh, you know, you just, you try to have to, you kind of have to think about ways to go beyond what is obvious, you know, that everybody else is going to be capturing. I think I know exactly who you're talking about, this man in Cuba. And uh, I, I see him around once in a while as well. But uh, 
you know, you talk about getting away from the cliche. Are you are you still photographing the cliche and but also looking for other things? Or are you completely avoiding those sort of postcard shots? Or are you just beyond that now? Well, I'd love to say that I'm beyond it uh, completely, but um, at making a living off my photography, I can't necessarily ignore all of the cliches. Uh, but I do try to look at the cliche scenes in different light, under different conditions. And I also try to put my own personal spin on the cliche, if you will. So, and that might be by my choice of lens, my choice of position. So I might be taking a cliche scene, but trying to do something different with it so that it's not looking like the postcard or like the shot that everybody gets, you know, the well-worn tripod holes. So I will see if there's an option to getting something different because for my business, I need to produce some things that are recognizable and identifiable and iconic of a place. And yet I'm trying to be fresh in my approach to that. Yeah, that's a great, uh, great insight. Another topic that you mentioned during the talk was that, uh, that of light. The importance of having good light. Um, that doesn't mean that when the light is bad, you don't photograph. It means that you find a, another way to photograph. So can you expand, expound a little bit on that? Yeah, I do believe that there's no such thing as bad light. It's just maybe the wrong light for the subject at hand. So I think that photographers need to always be paying attention to light and what effect it's having on the subject. And if it's not the right time to be there, then try to plan to go back to that location when the light would be good and best for that location. And if you're traveling, which happens sometimes where you can't get back and the light is not perfect for the, the shot that you envisioned, then you have to be flexible and open up to what other things you can photograph there under that light or maybe find details or things of that subject <clears throat> that will work in those light conditions so that you come away with something from the visit to that spot but ideally, if you can plan ahead and you can plan to be in the right place with, you know, what you would hope would be the best light for it, that's really the best way to approach it with a little bit of research and planning and scheduling. You get there when the light's good. Now, you can't guarantee that it's going to be great. So if it's not, you should have a plan B. And that plan B might be rather than the big landscape that you were thinking about photographing, you might have to narrow that view down to being detailed or um, some smaller scene that works under those conditions of light that you're faced with. But I think you just need to be flexible and open to looking at what light you have to work with and making the best of it in any situation. Absolutely. And what about composition? Uh, you, have, uh, you mentioned visual flow in your presentation. Uh, you also mentioned things like the rule of mm -hmm. thirds and, and so on. I'm a, I'm a bit against rules. <laughs> so the rule <laughs> of thirds to me always triggers uh, <laughs> a feeling, oh, some, uh, a especially, huh? yeah, um, I, I just got in a, in a discussion with somebody online about the golden, the golden ratio and the spiral and so on. 
So, but yeah, what, what's your take on composition, visual flow, and those kind of things? What, what's really important? Okay. Well, um, I hear you um, about the the idea of resisting the rules, and and I would agree. But I think that it's important, especially for new photographers starting out, to understand that the quote-unquote rule of thirds evolved from very sound reasoning in what was pleasing to the eye. And we're talking centuries ago now, you know, uh, painters and others determined certain placement of things and certain arrangements were more pleasing than others. And that's sort of very loosely how that all evolved. And so while I think that the rules are good to understand in terms of why does the rule of thirds work? Why does something have more impact when it's in one of those golden intersection, you know, points in the, in the grid? But on the other hand, only to understand how then you might be able to break that rule and push things a little bit to create some more dynamic tension and and visual interest in your photograph. So for me, visual flow, also known as composition, is about guiding the viewer's eye through your picture in a way that tells your story that shows them the things that you feel are important and therefore by default you're composing with some of your main elements and your subject most likely in a position that feels good in your gut and is somewhat balanced then with the rest of the things in the frame because a photograph that doesn't have some thought to composition and balance and visual tension and so forth ends up just being cluttered and potentially a chaotic image and you might have all these great elements in there but the the viewer isn't getting it because you haven't really positioned yourself to arrange things in a way that makes the the path clear to the viewer as to what they should do as they move through your image does that make sense absolutely what about you ralph you like uh, breaking rules more than you like following them, or you are more of a rules person? <laughs> uh, I, I believe, uh, like Brenda, that uh, the rules are there for a reason, kind of like cliches are cliches for a reason, because they, uh, you know, there's something about them. And so, uh, you know, if it's, and sometimes I'll be real obvious about using the rule of thirds. Uh, other times it's not so obvious and, you know, it might be the rule of fifths or something, but it's, it's still along that lines. And so, uh, I do use them, but I try to also, um, you know, uh, kind of bend them a little bit and sometimes break them. But, uh, you know, as far as composition goes, I, what I've been trying to do more and, and I, n- I never heard, uh, did you call it visual flow, Brenda? Is that the term? Yes. Okay, yeah. I like that. I like that. Um, I, what I'm trying to do more of is, uh, you know, I've got my subject in the shop, but I'm trying to add something either in the background or the foreground that helps to tell that story or is more, um, it gives some sense of the environment or that sense of place. And so instead of just that portrait shot, adding something, maybe, you know, uh, you've got a, a Berber, tribesmen in, in Morocco and then in the background you've got a camel going across the desert dunes 
as opposed to just a portrait of him. But then again, I'm also taking that portrait alone and I'm probably getting four or five different versions of that scene. So are, mm -hmm. are, I'm sure you're working in the scene like that as well, Brenda, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I'm always thinking about it and I'm always thinking about background, you know, as well as foreground. But what you said is, is really valid. You know, it, it completes the story. I mean, a portrait of someone is great and it may be obvious that it's a portrait of a Moroccan man, as, as your example stated. But when you can have something else in, so it's an environmental portrait in that sense, some other story going on, you know, we're adding to the story of who he is. It might be his, his camels, or it might be sheep, or it might just be architecture behind him, but it gives a stronger sense of place indeed. Brenda, you know, you, you mentioned that, uh, I think before we talked, uh, before we got on the air, you mentioned that you just returned from Slovenia. Number one, uh, I've got a question for you. What do you do to minimize jet lag? <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about drugs know. on the air? <laughs> <laughs> well, seriously, yeah, seriously, um, it's it's gotten a little bit worse in the past few years, um, which is a surprise to me because I was doing so well. But I I actually do. Uh, try to get myself on a schedule before I go so that that matches where I'm going. So I will change my sleep habits and eating habits a little bit if I can ahead of time. But I also use, and this is why I asked if it's okay to talk about drugs, it's drugs in a sense. It's a homeopathic tablet that is called no jet lag. And if it's a placebo, it's working and I'm using it. So I do take that and it's literally, I chew it like every two hours while I'm flying and it has made a big difference for me. So that's one of the things that I've been doing to help as well. And I did not do so well with that this time. I simply ran out and didn't plan ahead. So um, I'm feeling it a little bit more. So I think it does help. You know, I had heard about it and I thought I'm going to give it a try and it seemed to be working. But mostly, I think that you also need to give yourself a lot of a lot of times, you know, if you land and you start running right away onto, you know, the tour that you're leading or the tour you're attending or your own self-prescribed tour and agenda, you know, I think that it's not necessarily a good thing. And I'm finding that one thing that really helps me is to take one day before I really jump into the activities to sort of get myself rested and together. And if I can do that, then, you know, without any homeopathy or anything, I'm better suited for, you know, getting on schedule more quickly. But that also depends on, on how far you're traveling and then also how far, you know, how long you've been away. That can be rough when you're coming back after three or four weeks. I think it's really important to think about jet lag, to, to find ways to overcoming it because you, you go to a place and you don't want to be grumpy, you don't want to be yawning, especially because you might uh, want to interact with people and get the best out of them if you want to shoot them, which is, from my part, just a long-winded way to come back to the issue of photographing people. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and the, the importance of it, it's, uh, it's very important to, to have a well-rounded out portfolio of a location, to include photos of people 
and for for many photographers it's difficult they don't know how to relate to people they might be shy and so on so what are your your suggestions your tips to overcome your fears um, interact with people in the best way to get the best uh, people portraits i think one of the best ways to start getting past your self-consciousness of photographing people especially strangers is to start where you live literally go down to farmers markets and and wander around and ask if you can photograph people that are at the farmers market the vendors selling their produce because often that might be what you're going to photograph when you're in Venice at the Rialto fish market you know you're going to want to photograph the fish but you're going to want to photograph the vendors too and so if you can do local things like that wander around give yourself an assignment to photograph the the bellhop outside of a hotel in your local town, you know, anybody, taxi drivers, just in general, use your local town as a way to practice getting used to photographing and approaching strangers. I think it's a very effective way to get warmed up and If you go to public places and public events like festivals, things where a lot of the people are expected that they'll be, you know, they're expecting to be photographed because they're on display publicly, they're in costume or whatever it might be. That's also a, a, an easier way to sort of break the ice and get used to getting up close in someone's face. And that also helps you then if you're using like a 35 to 85 millimeter focal length range rather than your 70 to 3 300 at 300 millimeters because that's sort of the sniper or voyeuristic approach from the distance you know and 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 you need to be you need to be in with people and so i found that initially for me um even though i'm a people person i found that it was a little awkward to approach people when i first tried to do this in foreign destinations and so i found that the practice of going to the local festivals and markets here in my hometown or wherever i was living made it a little bit easier and i could because i could speak the language i could say look i'm working on a project to photograph you know faces of the farmers market and can i photograph you and more often than not people are willing to help you even though it's your own self assignment you're saying i'm working on a project and and people like to help each other so that made it easier and then after that i felt a little bit more uh, fortified to go and do that same sort of thing when i was traveling i can't always speak the language but with sign language and gesturing and showing genuine interest in what somebody's doing i found that it i could break the ice and i could get some sort of a connection going to where i could make a, a nice image of someone rather than just trying to grab a shot and moving on so it might be that you're photographing a shoemaker for example mm-hmm. you know maybe you're or or a shoe shine person maybe your shoes need shining or maybe your shoe needs repair that might be a way to break the ice and then you get some really nice portraits having made that connection you know a couple of years ago i was uh, i started this project called uh, i called it a stranger day where every day i would take uh, a photo of a stranger a portrait and i would ask for a Great. portrait but not just and i was really self conscious and shy at the beginning and i i was thinking that everybody would just say no or think i was somebody somehow strange or creepy 
but I found that most people <laughs> are actually very friendly. I mean, they they are perfectly okay with having their portrait taken, uh, even if they're not used to it. And uh, I got many more yes, yeses than noes, and uh, that helped me a lot. I did it for 150 portraits, and then I was at felt that it was at the point that I. I was not afraid anymore. It was a great, great project, great exercise. So I, would- I think that's a great idea, Ugo. It really is. And, and it's, it's, a, it's along the lines of what I was talking about is just, you know, putting yourself out there and trying it and remembering that even if you maybe you're not comfortable being photographed or you assume people won't like it, you couldn't be further from the truth sometimes that it's, it's just this, this grab shot that a lot of people try to do with a long lens um they take the shot and then they move on and they don't make any eye contact and so forth i think that doesn't work and and so i think that people have to recognize that you can't project your own feelings or fears onto that person just because you think they might not like to be photographed you know, you you should try because you'll get, as you said, more yeses than noes, and that opens up the doors. And I convince people of this on every tour I lead because many times I get people on a trip and they say, well, I don't really like to photograph people. And I said, you don't like to photograph people or you're not comfortable photographing people. And it usually comes down to, well, I'm not really comfortable with it. And so I give them some extra exercises to try out to get them warmed up and I kind of try to work with them to help them see that that it's not so difficult because I think people are essential in your travel portfolio of of any place you visited they are who make up the culture and the and the the mood of the place to me I I always say that it's a very cultural thing and that it really is important to do your research. And if you go with a good tour company, if you're on a tour, um, like, like we lead, then, uh, we're uh, we're probably going to give you a lot of information about, you know, what the culture is like there. Uh, you know, there's always this question about tipping people and it's kind of like, uh, you know, in Cuba, the, you can photograph just about anyone, but they're almost all going to expect to be tipped. Uh, in Morocco, it can be difficult to photograph the people. Oftentimes, you know, they'll see you from across the market if you point a long lens at them and they can't get angry. So it's really about understanding in advance what to expect and how to approach wherever you go. That's, that's my feeling. That's a good point, too, because there's protocol and you don't want to be offending the culture. Uh, We don't want to become that ugly traveler, whether it's American or European traveler or whatever. We don't want to anger the locals at all. Uh, It's the very opposite that we really want. And so you have to be very careful. And I think you're right that you need to do your research. And if you're going with a tour company or a tour group that helps you get familiar with that, great. And if not, if you're traveling on your own, then you need to be prepared for 
what's acceptable and what isn't. Because there is also a personal space that each culture has in terms of what's comfortable. In Asia, you can get much closer to people. They're used to being close and crowded. Whereas for us, you know, our personal space in America is about three feet away. And and closer than that, a lot of people start to feel a little self-conscious. So it's also unique to the culture. You you travel a lot, Brenda, and you I'm sure you're busy. Uh, you know, how do you organize your day with when it comes? You know, you're writing books. I'm sure you're downloading, editing photographs. Are you doing this every day? Do you allot a certain amount of time for each of these things? Social media, you know, managing future trips, breaking down from past ones. Oh boy, that's a loaded question. But um, I don't have any specific structural schedule. When I'm traveling, I'm one of these people that really likes to be immersed in the place that I'm traveling. And so I don't, uh, for better or for worse, I don't necessarily keep up with a lot of business and things that might take me out of the experience of the place as much as maybe I should be. I do try to keep up with social media. I will post pictures from the place and and just sort of share my impressions and my excitement about being where I am. And I try to do that through my blog or through, you know, social media venues. Um, as far as editing on the road, I'm using a small laptop and I will do a rough edit at times and, and call all the obvious bad shots out. But I don't do final editing and processing until I'm home on a, on a better monitor to work with and where I have more space. And also because I like to give myself a little bit of distance from the images, um, I will do a quick edit and then I might not return and edit again again for about three weeks because I find that my initial reaction sometimes is less excitement than when I revisit after I've had a little bit of time to digest what I experienced and the kind of images that I made. I mean, there's always pictures that you go, wow, I got it. This is great. And then there's others that are like, hmm, you know, this is good. And then three weeks later, I'll go, well, actually, this is really nice. I like this picture. But there's that sort of initial, I don't want to say disappointment, but there's a, you know, an initial reaction to the pictures when you're still in the moment and the highs of having been traveling that I feel can can affect my judgment on my editing. So that I do reserve for a, a few weeks down the road typically. And as far as the books go, uh, you know, the books and the, and the writing articles and all of that just gets squeezed in between wherever I can fit it. So I do try to do some of that when I'm on the road if I'm going to be gone for months. But um, truthfully, I try to plan my schedule so that I've got time to to do that when I'm not trying to work on it in the middle of a tour. So I'll take five days in Venice on my own, for example, just so that I can focus on getting work done. All right. We are uh, already at the top of our half hour or even a little bit beyond it, even though this conversation is so, so interesting that uh, I would love to keep it going for a, for a while longer, but uh, maybe we'll do another one shortly, maybe after your next trip. What, what's, uh, what you are, do you have coming up? Any interesting travels? 
Well, I've got uh, a few months home where I'm finishing up this book and I'm starting up on a new book. And so it's good to be home to have time to do that. And I'll do some local workshops. But as far as some international trips, I start up again with southern Spain. I've got Greece and Slovenia and Romania on the schedule for next year in terms of tours that I'm leading. And I will also have some U.S. destinations built into that schedule that I'm still actually finalizing as we speak. So I've got a a busy year ahead of me for sure, uh, one filled with hopefully great adventures and great light. Um, I just want to thank you, Brenda, for coming on. Uh, We've been friends for a while now, and uh, it's great to see you again. Um, but, uh, always good to hear what you're up to. And, uh, sounds like we've got a few similar trips coming up and, uh, I, I'm looking forward to hearing more about, uh, your experiences in these places. So look forward to having you on the show again sometime. Well, thanks. I would love it. And I really am honored to be on the show now. So I look forward to the chance to continue this conversation at a future date and thank you both for your interest. You're very much welcome. And before we close this conversation, would you just like to mention where can people go and find about you online? Yes, you can go to my website, which is brendatharp.com. And from there, you can get to my portfolios, you can get to my tour and workshop schedule, and my blog that I keep up with. And also, you can connect with me via social media, all by just going to the website. Great. So thanks to both of you for being with us today. And again, it's been a great conversation. I can't wait to repeat it but for now it's all and uh, have a great time have a great day bye thank you thanks brenda bye now bye